Aloha Kako. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa. So glad you're here for an appreciation of our working lives. We all do it. And you've heard Hawaii's got a tough environment for business. Well, some of that is red tape, but some of that is what has made Hawaii a livable place for everyday workers. Protections like health care for full-time employees are not available everywhere. Securing rights for workers is part of a legacy here in the islands. Our story today starts on Hawaii Island. Dwight Takamine was born and raised in Honoka'a. Honoka'a High, UH Manoa, Richardson School of Law, Takamine represented his district then for 26 years in the House and Senate. He picked up the mantle from his father, Yoshito Takamine. The senior Takamine was elected to the House when Hawaii was still a territory, 1958. He went on to represent his district until 1984. And in that time, Yoshito Takamine helped establish a bedrock of worker protections, including Hawaii's Prepaid Health Care Act. Dwight Takamine is remembered for his fight to transition jobs and people when sugar ended there on the Hamakua Coast in the 80s and 90s. He was Hawaii's labor director, in fact, coming out of the last economic recession. Takamine began his legal career at a legendary law firm in Honolulu, Bauslog and Simons, championed civil rights and the rights of workers at a time when sands were shifting under Hawaii's powerful plantation owners. There were some great labor attorneys in that firm, as you know, not only labor, but civil rights attorneys also, yeah? What were they doing here? As you're aware, the ILW saw some attacks, political and otherwise, when they were just forming. At that time, of course, the state of Hawaii uh, was heavily influenced by the Big Five. You're talking about the 40s. 40s, yeah. Mm -hmm. So some legal issues uh, came up uh, as uh, leaders of the ILW were accused of being communists. You also had uh, the McCarthy Red Scare. And Hawaii had its own Hawaii 7. Exactly. Mm -hmm. People in the law firm, I guess, like Harriet Buzlog was able to turn around some of these cases, finding in favor of the ILW and its membership, the workers, especially with the background of that being the targeting the leaders. Clearly, the purpose was to kill the union before it got started. Yeah. The, the real issue was trying to stem the power of the unions. Exactly. Because when you look at the big picture, right, the, the big five, uh, you know, that own pretty much all of the sugar plantations, right, throughout the state, they had been in power pretty much for 50 years or so before the Democratic Revolution in 1954. And when you talk about timing and the Democrats, many of the 442nd veterans coming back after World War II, using the GI Bill to attend law school, uh, you know, gain that kind of background, and then coming home because they wanted to see social change. I think, you know, you look at some of those dynamics, and I think they become part of what underlay, part of the foundation that allowed the 54, you know, revolution to take place. And therefore, you would hope that, you know, then the next consequences, the next steps uh, would move in somewhat of a predictable uh, direction in terms of 
providing the tools necessary to prevent the kinds of abuses that were imposed on workers and you know the working class in the past. I think about the period that that your father was a legislator, and so many uh, of what we consider kind of basic worker protections actually had to be thought of and enacted, like just allowing collective bargaining, um, the idea of workers' compensation, of course, the you know Prepaid Health Care Act, which Hawaii was a leader in for this country. It's just hard to even remember that, that we were that, right? No, before getting into that, maybe let me give some background, personal background of my father. You know, Would uh, you? His parents immigrated to Hawaii from Okinawa, um, both his mother and father. And um, his father came first, and that was to, to work on the plantations, right? Because um, there was a lot of poverty in Okinawa and perhaps not enough jobs. Um, in any event, uh, you know, um, my father's mother was a picture bride and, you know, they ended up raising a family of 13 children. My father was the oldest son. And so, you know, at that time, um, you know, clearly on the plantations, uh, you know, you had uh, very little pay for long hours of work. There were no laws at that time, right? That, you know, kind of uh, helped to manage that in a better way. And so, um, uh, basically, there was a lot of hardship, a lot of sacrifices uh, for the families, but that was sort of the life of plantation families. And it's I really think, hard to imagine. It honestly is that there, were, there was no restriction on how many hours you had to work or the conditions that you had to live in under mm -hmm. or, you know, or recourse if you were not paid. Yeah. Not only that, you know, what you mentioned last, no recourse, you know, the leverage clearly was on the side of management, right? At that time, especially if you tried to speak with one voice, you know, just yourself. And I think while my father was growing up, he saw some of those abuses, you know, that occurred. And I think those were the impressions, you know, that kind of weighed on him so that, uh, you know, he attended Honoka High School. And he graduated in 1944, I believe. And soon thereafter, started working for the Honoka Plantation. That's where his introduction to the union, his introduction to the ILWU occurred. And soon thereafter, he actually became an employee of the ILWU. Of course, 1959 is uh, statehood, right? Uh-huh. And um, his first run, again, being encouraged by the ILWU to, to do so, mm -hmm. was uh, for the territorial legislature. Hawaii had not yet become a state. That's when he had a uh, narrow victory, but uh, he did prevail. Of course, after statehood, he ran. And, you know, after the first election, he won 12, I guess, re-elections and were, was able to serve for a period of 26 years. Mm, yeah. And I mean, and he had that solid support from that whole side of the island, really. You know, that's a good point because um, the sugar workers, of course, at that time, you know, if you look at the economics, sugar was the number one industry, right, in the state. 
and each plantation has its own, you know, uh, workforce and the sugar workers from the field workers to the tradespeople, you know, all of that. And they were all organized under the ILWU. So that provided a pretty good base. And was that most of the population on the Hamakua coast? Actually, it was. Just to give you a little bit of an idea, the Hilo-Hamakua coastline, let's say um, from Hilo down to Waipio Valley, that's most of the windward side of the Big Island. If you look at that 50-mile coastline, it had, at least in the 1990s, two large plantations. But it didn't start out that way. Uh, when you look at these towns that developed along the coastline, most, if not all of them, developed around a mill operation, right? And you had workers there and their families. And to serve that, then the community grew around those plantation mills. If you look at the Waipio side, which would be the northern part of that Hilo Hamako coastline, arbitrarily, let's say Lapohoihoi, because that's about in the middle of, you know, uh, that coastline. Lapohoihoi, uh, you know, had a mill, Okala, Pauillo, Pauhau, and Honokau were all these towns that developed around the operations of the sugar mill and, you know, the, the plantation families. If you then go more to the south from Lapohoihoi and begin, say, with Ninole, then you go to Hakalau, and then to Honomu, then to Pepekeo, and then to Papaiko. And of uh -huh. course, Wainaku is the sugar mill just outside of Hilo, right? After that airplane right. bridge. You may be well familiar, but um, Scotch Kurisu, um, uh -huh. he was an independent sugar grower. Two of his sons are named Derek Kurisu and Wayne Kurisu. Uh, the reason why I pointed out the Kurisu family is because Scotch Kurisu, the father, I'm sure with the help of his children, had a book written and it's called Sugartown. I'm not sure if you have uh, read that, but no, uh, if you haven't, you need to, okay? Because I think it impacts directly on our conversation today. The Kurisus lived um, around in the Hakalau area, yeah? Of course, Hakalau had its own mail operations. And this mm -hmm. book was about all of the people. Yeah, if anything, the people of the community. Of course, you know, the economic activity revolved around growing sugar, harvesting sugar, and the different personalities. And what was so great about the book was that if you go to any of the towns I mentioned, Scotch Kurisu had his own, you know, uh, people who were named, who were different characters that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people would identify, you know, and each town would have their own, you know, um, oh. and that's, that's what to me was so unique and special about, about the book. It, it gave you a real flavor, you know, of what plantation life was like and that whole era of sugar and some of the values, yeah, that it fostered and... What were those values? Uh... You know, when you have rural communities, right, um, so much relies on relationships. Some of this I kind of learned from my father, just seeing him work, is uh, basically the trust has to be sort of the foundation of any kind of strong relationship. And I think uh, respect goes right along with that. And I think that's how, right, people kind of develop relationships that allow people to then work together. Going back to 
how can the union make a difference through their political action program? Let me give you this situation. At one time, my father was the chairman of the labor committee in the, on the House side. And Nadao Yoshinaga was the labor committee chair on the Senate side. He was from Maui, and yep, he had worked closely with the ILWU. And a person named Ed Nakamura, who ultimately served as a Hawaii Supreme Court justice, was providing technical support to both the House and the Senate as needed. There was another guy named Shoji Okazaki who helped to coordinate that kind of uh, legislative program. Again, you know, that whole idea going back to values, that relationships and trust uh, and honesty uh, and hard work, all of those are key ingredients in making, you know, that kind of, you know, legislative program work. And when you look at the different laws, they were improved incrementally. It wasn't overnight. It was over a period of time. Yeah, well, you described some real plantation values there. <laughs> and so did you ever hear about Katsugoto growing up? <laughs> I, I didn't. You know, I mean, I was born and raised in Honoka. I attended Honoka <laughs> High School, you know, graduated in 1971. In all of those years, not one time did I hear about the name Katsugoto. It was really after graduation and um, primarily because my father was serving as the state representative because um, some of the uh, family uh, uh, of Katsugoto who lived in Japan, you know, um, contacted him. I, I think it was with respect to building a memorial, you know, for, for Katsugoto. My father was able to work with uh, several community leaders, yeah, so they picked a site right down the main street going through Honoka, and the memorial was put together with materials both from Japan, you know, as well as uh, from Hawaii. Patsy Iwasaki has been such a gem in terms of getting more people to just be aware, yeah, you know, her thought about wanting ultimately to work with the Department of Education. I'm thinking in terms of including the Katsugoto story as part of the curriculum uh, would be fantastic. I mean, for all of the, you know, uh, Honoka school students, uh, you know, and those who graduate from there, uh, for those who live there, that becomes part of the common heritage. And it's something to be proud of because in some respects, you know, Katsugoto probably can be looked upon as a, a hero of sorts. He became an advocate for the workers. He was there on the cutting edge. He paved the way for the labor unions that we have now. Attorney and lawmaker Dwight Takamine. And we will head to Hawaii Island and hear Katsugoto's story there in Hamakua a little later this hour. <laughs> Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin September 20th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Regina Louise, author of Permission Granted. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be discussing intention, positive action, and self-love. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. yourself on Kauai 32 years ago. I mean, people weren't really complaining about traffic then, but that's when Fred Dente and his wife arrived to make their home there on the Garden Island. Here's Dente's work-life story as it evolved with Kauai's economy and finally nosedived this year. I was a carpenter for 35 years and uh, I got hurt bad out in the water uh, in a body surfing accident. And so I was not able to continue working. So I had to reinvent myself. So thank you to the state of Hawaii's uh, vocational rehabilitation services. I got a really great lady there who helped me to reinvent myself. I became a music teacher because I've been a musician mm -hmm. for many, many decades actually. So I started mm -hmm. teaching music. And then the way the economy started going, um, people were not, were not able to afford lessons anymore. You know, I had a lot, of, I did really well for several years and then the lessons kind of dried up because- um, You're saying well, maybe around the last recession. It was hitting see. like 2010. Yeah, the repercussions from that, absolutely. Yeah, things just started slowing down. And now, you know, Kauai is mainly a place for rich people. And uh, there's a whole lot of people here that are working in the tourist industry to, uh, you know, to support all that. but you know, it's, it's almost like this, this big, huge divisions, either, either you're super rich or you're, you know, part of the slave labor <laughs> class here in a way it's, it's, you know, and I, uh, I mean, my work experience, I, I didn't look at it as being slave labor, but as far as, because I really enjoyed the people I worked with when, when things got slow, I had to find reinvent myself again. And I, I applied for a food service job in Costco. And it's a different company, though. They contract with Costco. So my boss was like a super wonderful lady. And I was one of the few men on that doing that. We were preparing food samples. It was a great job. And um, I, I really had a wonderful time with all of my, my coworkers or, and uh, a lot of Filipino women and Samoan women and Hawaiian women and some a few men too and some uh, Caucasian women too and my boss is a Hawaiian woman and I'll tell you as far as that goes probably the best work experience in my life. Costco Lihue, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I like but it. the the pay was not good and they didn't give any raises. It had nothing to do with my boss. It was the corporation and well, it was thirteen forty an hour. I worked there four years. I was told how great a worker I was, how good I was, how good I was with the public, how many sales I made and everything, and no raises, not one. 13 40 an hour. Okay, so no, you had medical? Nah. And this was a part-time job? Yeah, it was a part-time job. Everybody that worked there was part-time. There was nobody full-time. 
So you were trying to get unemployment for two part-time jobs. I got unemployment for the job at Costco doing the food samples. And I also, I had worked in the hospital here for a while uh, doing, doing, working in the kitchen. So anyway, I got employment and I was on unemployment. Uh, we got laid off in um, April of, let's see, 2020, right after the, you know, the, the COVID hit really hard. Most of my coworkers, they had more than one job. They had, uh, you know, kids at home and a husband at home. And they, most of my coworkers had two or three jobs. They got laid off for most of them too, or maybe all of them. And what did they do? You you were successful in getting unemployment for that well, job. Were they also and, and for their other jobs as well? Well, some people found work. Some people didn't find work. Most people did not find work. And so they're struggling. It, it's like getting worse all the time for people, especially now they cut it all off on Labor Day, which is unbelievable. They cut off the unemployment on Labor Day. What was your experience with getting unemployment insurance? You oh. got it took a while to navigate that. Okay, you got it. And I got it and I was on unemployment until January of 2021. Nine, 10 months, something like that, I was on unemployment. Then all of a sudden in January, it stopped. No explanation. And I kept filing every week. Everything was the same. Months later, I got a, a really brief phone call from somebody at the DLIR. It was a woman and she said, you're going to be adjudicated she couldn't give me any other information. So that just kind of freaked me out, <laughs> left me going, what, what, what's that all about? Why? You made phone calls to unemployment. You filled oh. out forms online. Oh, yeah, yeah. To get the unemployment. Yes. But then when they cut me off, that was it. There was no way to do anything. You couldn't Why email not? anybody. You couldn't call anybody. And everybody I've talked to who's had this experience has made literally hundreds, if not thousands of phone calls. I spent hours and hours and hours on the phone, you know, redialing and redialing and redialing this one number that was given. Whoever you called, you could never get through. Never. I never talked to anybody that actually got through. The only way that I actually talked to this woman was she called me. And she had told me that there was an adjudicator that was going to call me, you know, very soon. And, and I said, what does very soon mean? She said, well, very soon. <laughs> never. That didn't happen. So then I started writing letters because I got desperate. I got desperate and was, was wondering what's going to happen to us here, you know? You wrote to your elected representatives. I wrote to Ron Kochi, Senate president, who's from Kauai. And I wrote to uh, uh, Jimmy Tokioka, our representative here you know, right. on Kauai, telling them my history. And um, I, I immediately got, immediately was called back by uh, staff people at Ron Kochi's office, and I was the first call I got. You eventually found justice, right? Well, I did, I did, and uh, the lady apologized to me, actually, the lady from the unemployment. She apologized to me in writing. So that was seven months, you were like... Twisting in the breeze, yeah, seven months, approximately. But I'm, I'm so sad for all the other folks who can't get through. Now, I, I understand they're changing their policy. Unemployment offices are gonna be more open to um, uh, receiving phone calls. I don't know that right now. I don't know. I haven't heard from anybody. I did a protest with a bunch of people um, about a month ago. We were protesting these buildings being shut down, the unemployment offices being shut down. And we were also uh, asking to raise the wages to, to be some kind of sustainable wage for people. People need to make a whole lot more than uh, $13.40 an hour or $10 an hour like McDonald's or you know the minimum wage. There's so many people that are still working for minimum wage, if they're even working. 
it's it's a big story and, and the government owes people they owe us they need to stay open they can't just keep hiding in their bunkers there's a way to do this safely so that they can open their doors people can go in they can answer the phones we can't even go to the county council we can't go to the mayor's office we can't go to the there's a lot of government institutions that are shut down because they're afraid of getting sick instead of putting up plastic or whatever they have to do to serve the people. Well, you know, it remains to be seen whether any more could be done in person. I mean, you might be standing in line rather than just beeping online, trying to get through on a phone line. But, well, either you know. one, either one. If the phones were open and the doors were open, people would be getting served. It's one way or another, instead of no way to reach them. You know, Maybe things have changed since they stop the unemployment now i haven't heard what's happened in the last couple of days but they left us hanging out to dry a whole lot of people in this state fred dente and his wife are in the process of moving to washington with the median home sale price on Kauai well over a million dollars now others are making a similar calculus Cruising on the street with an easy beat on the Dickinson Square, just hanging around. It's an easy life and a simple life. Everyone I know was shabby. In the course of his work life, Fred Dente used manual skills. He taught. He did customer relations. This sort of flexibility is increasingly what it takes to stay employed. Skilled workers at sugar plantations could look forward to one job for their entire working life. Today in Honolulu, the Hawaii Community Development Authority calls this low income, $67,700 a year. A lot of people need to juggle more than one job to make even that. Short-term, temporary employment can help. But how big is this gig economy? The Hawaii Workforce Development Council wanted to find out who's working in the gig economy here compared with the rest of the U.S. Wayne Liu, economist in DBED's Research and Economic Analysis Division, wrote that report. For Hawaii, basically, the report found that contingent workers or gig workers in Hawaii tend to be a little bit more female relative to gig workers in the rest of the nation. They tend to be a little bit more educated, more college degrees, more master's degrees relative to uh, gig workers for the rest of the nation. They tend to earn a little bit less and they tend to be a little bit younger relative to gig workers on the mainland. How about age-wise? Yeah, the median age was around 41 for Hawaii for these gig workers. And then for the U.S. overall, um, it's 44. So the difference isn't like super huge, but it's non-trivial. Does that paint a picture for you of the typical gig worker? It's a little tricky because when people talk about gig work, people usually think about like, oh, the Uber drivers or the Lyft drivers, right? Or someone who is doing some small side hustle type of job. But gig workers can also be like independent contractors because independent contractors, they don't have a steady employer, right? And so independent contractors tend to be a little older, right? They've gone through the typical employment system or whatever, you know, standard employment. And then they've realized, hey, I've actually got, you know, these high quality skills that I can have my own. Right. Independent contractors being people basically who have well-developed skills and their own businesses. Yeah. It's odd that they get lumped in with gig workers. I'm not sure that's good for them. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing to be 
you know, a quote unquote gig worker, but protections you might have as a standard nine to five employee versus an independent contractor or a gig worker is, you know, that's where you start getting into the nitty-gritty that oh you mean yeah the kinds of protections and, and the trade-offs that there might be for the maybe flexibility that's available as a gig worker i'm still trying to get just get a picture i mean for this one one of the easiest way to define gig economy workers is if they get a w2 or not w2 or not that's probably the sharpest and easiest cutting point again not super precise but for all intents and purposes, like it gets the job done. Now, what does this tell us about people's working lives? I mean, I guess some people like like it this way, but in a sense, it almost indicates a more unstable work life for people. Yeah, and I think that's where with the pandemic and the economy shutting down, that difference between standard employment and gig economy like really shone a light. The economy is going smoothly. The ability to control your own schedule, drive when you want to drive. You can get health insurance if you want through like your spouse or, you know, purchasing it yourself. You have this flexibility, but then when stuff starts hitting the fan, that's when you realize like you've had that flexibility, but then you've given up a little bit of the security, like with the unemployment insurance, the guarantee of health insurance if you work in a standard nine to five, at least in Hawaii, there are these trade-offs. And whenever you have this downturn, the trade-off is it's more stark. But these gig workers are covered by unemployment insurance, right? Typically, no. Like as an Uber driver or as an independent contractor, you don't have to put money into the unemployment insurance system. And so as like an independent contractor, if you have a hard time finding your next contract, you wouldn't get UI. That changed with the coronavirus pandemic because the economy was shut down so quickly. The federal government realized that in order to keep some semblance of living standards, these people who normally wouldn't get unemployment insurance get some level of unemployment insurance. What percentage of Hawaii's working population is this gig economy. I don't think there's any study where we've been able to like really put a, a firm number on it. But I mean, is the state looking at it as a growing sector? Going into it, there was this belief that it was growing. Anecdotally, people are like, hey, there's more gig jobs going on. I think they found that the number of people that they defined as like gig workers hadn't increased as substantially as we might think it had with this proliferation of Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and whatnot. Hmm. Wayne Liu, economist in DBED's Research and Economic Analysis Division. The state study showed as many as a quarter of gig workers in Hawaii worked overtime, 51 hours or more a week. How much did they make? Gig workers averaged $807 a week. Earlier this hour, we were picturing every little sugar town on the Hamakua coast. And you know, every town had its mill and its worker camps, and every Japanese worker camp had a Buddhist temple. Every Buddhist temple 
holds an annual welcome back for the ancestors. It's called the season of Obon, and a bon dance is held to honor and welcome them. A yagura, or central tower, is erected, usually with lights and streamers running out to the edge of the dance area. Drummers and singers perform on that tower as rings of dancers circle around. Now, here's one of the most popular traditional bon dance songs, Tankobushi, in a fine performance by Hompa Honganji Mission. I always thought this song was about planting and harvesting sugarcane. Tankobushi is a traditional coal miner's song from Japan, but the dance motions, if you've ever been to a bon dance, are clearly <laughs> digging, cutting the cane, throwing bundles over your shoulder. I mean, imagine those rough sugarcane camps, flickering lights, dances going on for hours, music, dancing, drinking. Every island had bon dance culture with different lyrics and different dance motions. And the songs are often about working, working very hard. Here, the great Fukushima Ondo performed by the Eva Fukushima Bon Dance Club in 2018. about work. But there are fun songs too. The Pokemon dance, slower songs, and if you've never been to a bon dance, try it. About a third of the people wear happy coats or kimono and everyone's welcome. On Kauai at the Soto Zen Temple in Hanapepe, Lahaina Jodo Mission, of course, Honoka'a's Honganji, all over Oahu as well. Normally, in the summertime, people dance. And this is not performance, it's what we do. Bon dances across the state were all virtual this year, again. Hopefully no pandemic can take this tradition down. Can you imagine work songs for the digital desk worker? In the same way, workers were drawn to the cane fields, though increasingly workers are needed in what's called the platform economy. We need to know our way around there. You've heard about innovative Hawaii companies able to work the digital space, but how can regular workers get jobs there? DBED, the State Department of Business and Economic Development's vetted two job portals that could get you started. Scott Murakami is now economic coordinator for the economic innovation team at DBED. There's a variety of different types of remote work opportunities. So we started out with a very fundamental level of looking at customer service, because that's what we're good at. That's a natural market for Hawaii. There are two companies that are available on the website. One is with a company called Instant Teams, and they actually are the employer. So Instant Teams will employ Hawaii's residents. They go out and they negotiate contracts with other businesses to provide customer service solutions. So Hawaii's residents work remotely and they provide customer service for the businesses that have enlisted the services from these teams. So um, that's like a call center. Precisely, precisely. But it's distributed, right? All throughout the world. The other opportunity that Instant Teams is looking for, they're looking for business development professionals. So people who can actually go out and help them to further their own business. So that's one company, and they provide, as I said, um, employment opportunities. So they're actually jobs. The other one that we're working with is a company called NextRep. The difference is NextRep is a um, does not provide employment; they're work opportunities. So uh, it's for Hawaii's residents who want a little more flexibility. They're independent contractors that work directly with NextRep, 
But NextRat, very similarly to Instant Teams, will go out and enter into these contracts and then provide these work opportunities for the remote workforce. Wow. And so what, you know, what kind of pay can I expect in this kind of work? You know, and security it, it, and benefits, yeah. <laughs> if any. So <laughs> it, it really varies at different levels. And I think part of it is based on the experience. The nice thing with Instant Teams is they provide training and they provide a paid internship opportunity. Help me understand how this works. These remote working jobs would be with local companies or would they be with international companies and jobs are available right now? They are opportunities that are local, national, and global. I got a call from a technology company based in Philadelphia that was looking for people who had certifications in Amazon Web Services because they want to run a 24-hour-7 support center. That's where our time zone would maybe make us a good market. Right, right. Precisely because, you know, the reality of it is that a lot of these jobs are dispersed now and we don't know what the new workforce is going to be. Otherwise, the residents are going to have to go out and look for that, these opportunities themselves. They'll have to vet them and to make sure that they're working with reputable companies. And, and that's what we're trying to do on the DBED side. So if someone's interested in remote work, they maybe should just check the DBED website and start with these two uh, recommended connectors, right? That might be a good way. Sure. Uh, and what kind of pay can they expect here? It's going to range a whole lot, and it really depends on the... From what to what, though? That's difficult to say at this point, because a lot of it really is based on the individual's training capabilities. So, Pretty interesting, though, huh? It is. You know, and there's some popular literature suggesting that this is going to be the new shape of work in the future, and that individuals need to be proficient in what's called a platform economy, um, that things are shifting to these electronic platforms that aggregate work opportunities. Certainly, I think um, this type of opportunity can appeal to anybody who's really interested in either picking up a second job or pursuing something that is a little bit more comfort zone that they have. The labor pool shrank after the last recession, right? After the 08-09 recession. And the idea is that it's shrinking again. Right. You know, whenever we have these types of prolonged type of economic downturns, there is what's called unemployment scarring that goes along with it. So that pertains to people who have been out of the labor market for a significant amount of time. And that contributes to the long-term unemployment levels um, that aren't measured by the unemployment rate that's popularly reported. Cost of living should keep us all working for quite a while. <laughs> so that's true. You know, one thing that I would like to add you know, is that, you know, at DBED, one of the things that we're looking at is, and this goes back to what the economic innovation team is looking at, we're looking at other factors that help us to define the quality of life in Hawaii, not just um, the GDP levels that we produce as a, as a state economy. We're also looking at the well-being of the people, environment, and the culture. So we're doing other things like looking at the genuine progress indicators that kind of help us determine, is it, it's not just GDP that's con- contributing to the overall welfare of Hawaii, but there are things like the uh, environmental impact we're having, the cultural sensitivity we have, um, the impact on our natural resources that help give us a better picture of how we're doing as an overall economy. I guess quantifying those things that we call quality of life that help us to accept our low wages. You know, everything's a trade-off. Yeah, I know. Maybe we should stop asking ourselves why, you know, why, why do we have to have this trade-off? Yeah, that's why I think it's important having a variety of opportunities, because even with remote work, 
people may not know that it's something that can make their just make them feel better and, and at the same time provide some additional supplemental income or be a replacement for their current job. They don't know that. And the reason I bring that up is that remote work might be able to provide people with better work-life balance. And I'm not talking about a replacement of a job, but even if somebody's working two jobs and they can do one of them at home when they want to do it on their time so that they can spend more time with their family, less time out you know, um, on, on the job site, then I think we've helped make that life a little better, that person's life a little better. And that's the overall effort that we're trying to do. Scott Murakami is now Economic Coordinator for the Economic Innovation Team at TBED. We'll have a link to the Hawaii Remote Work Project with this story at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. On the next Fresh Air, on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, we talk with Peter Bergen, a leading authority on Al-Qaeda and author of a new biography of Osama bin Laden. We'll talk about conditions in Afghanistan after the U.S. troop withdrawal and the chances that terrorist organizations will flourish there, as Al-Qaeda did in the 90s. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. Knowing our history ties us to a place. For this story, we head to Hawaii Island's Hamakua Coast. You heard earlier this hour about the many sugarcane plantations that dotted the coastline. This story takes place in Honoka'a in 1889. Katsugoto was born in Oiso, Kanagawa Prefecture. He was 23 years old in 1885 when he left Japan. He was one of the first group of Japanese to come to Hawaii under sugar plantation labor contracts. Goto was assigned to the Overin Plantation, commonly called Honoka'a Plantation, and Dr. Patsy Iwasaki picks up the story here. She's been researching Goto's life for over 20 years. So this is, this is us at the Katsugoto Memorial. And then um, Overin Plantation Camp was down here. So here, here is where he was ambushed, you know. Even though it, it happened in 1889, over 100 seems like 130 years ago, you know, we have uh, documentation. It was a highly publicized trial, and there's a lot of testimony. And then this is the site of the courthouse and the jail, too. So it's to, oh, to the left up there. Uh, this place is important because over in camp is further down here. And then, uh, and then he was coming back from a meeting with plantation workers at over in camp here to the main street because this is this was the main street over a hundred years ago and it still is the main street and he was uh he was ambushed and lynched here 
so so what happened um was you know after um after his plant you know plantation contract was was done after three years he opened up his general store and he became a uh, a leader of the community and a lot of people would um you know, seek his help. He became a mediator, liaison between the Japanese plantation workers and the plantation management, um, namely over in camp here, because he knew English, and um, and 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 I, and I think he you know, he had a lot of character. It was in his nature to to become a leader. Mm. Uh, and in the court records, it says that you know Japanese workers would, if they were told by the over you know uh, Robert Overend or his workers to do something and they weren't really uh, pleased with it they would always say um, we're gonna go talk to Goto and we have um, Robert Overend saying that you know in the court records that they would consult with Goto over their contracts their work and and other things and um, in October earlier in October 1889 there was a fire on um, they, uh, they often call it Honoka Plantation, but over in Plantation. And already by then, um, Goto was a target uh, because uh, Robert Overin, the plantation um, owner, knew that his, his workers were always seeking Katsugoto out um, to, to seek improvements to their work situation. And so uh, he was a targeted man already. So when the fire occurred on the plantation, Robert Overin uh, thought that this was instigated by Katsugoto. And he had already told Katsugoto at one point that if he ever saw um, Katsugoto talking to his plantation workers, uh, that he was a dead man. So after that fire, the plantation workers were targeted and fined, I think, $20 for, for causing the fire. And we don't know if who, who actually did that or if it was by accident, but they were fined and sent to jail. And so that night, while they were discussing this situation, they said, well, we, be we better talk to Katsugoto and see how he could help us. And so they, they, they asked him, they asked to meet with him. And then he went over to over in camp to their plantation homes there on the camp. And that was a big risk for Katsugoto as well, because he's, he was already threatened. He was down in the plantation workers area. Right. And then so when he was coming out and coming to the main street of Honoka'a, he was ambushed probably close to, to here, to the memorial. Um, and then he was uh, taken um, and, and hung on a telephone pole uh, a, ways, a little ways down where the um, current Honoka'a High School pool is now. Um, there was a lyceum, there was a courthouse, and there was a jail there. And, and that's where they tied his hands and um, they pulled him off his horse uh, and um, he fell and then tied his hands and then they, they, they hung him on the telephone pole. And, uh, and hangings at that time, we don't know of many in Hawaii, but in the mainland U.S. at that time, you know, there, there were a lot of hangings happening, especially to the uh, you know, African-Americans. Yeah, they were called there. something else though, right? Yeah judicial process here right. right who were these people uh you know there was a trial that was highly publicized and four men were arrested and convicted in the murder case william blabin joseph mills thomas Steele, and william watson watson would be the only one to fulfill his sentence 
Steele escaped through a window and left Oahu on a ship bound for Australia. Blabin slipped out of the prison gate and boarded a ship to San Francisco. And Mills was uh, eventually granted a full pardon and restoration of his civil rights by the Republic of Hawaii. What is it about the story? What is it about what he did? Hmm. Well, you know, I am a descendant of immigrants. And so I, his story really resonated with me. That he wasn't just satisfied to um, open his store and be successful. And the store was a stepping stone for him to get off the plantations and become successful. But um, uh, instead of um, just turning his back on his uh, Japanese, you know, fellow Japanese workers on the plantation, he chose to, to, to embrace his role and try to help them. And, uh, and, and for that, he, he, he died for it, you know. He, he sacrificed his life trying to help uh, the situation that he already had left. You know, it wasn't like he was in the situation. Um, and currently, I mean, in, in the situation when this all happened, he already had crossed that line and was a successful businessman. And, um, and you, you know, lynchings back then and, and you know, were, even in the American South, um, they were to give a message to the people in the community that, uh, you know, this can happen to you. Uh, do not overstep. You know, it was a hate crime. Did, did his lynching have that kind of effect? You know, I'm not sure, but it took a, it took a while before um, the unions came in, you know. It, it, you know, I'm sure what he did planted the seeds of more equity and of the unionization and equity for workers. But, but it, it didn't happen right away. It took several decades later to bring more equity to, to the workers on the plantation. Dr. Patsy Iwasaki is working on a film about Booker's life. We'll have a link to it with this story. She's produced a graphic novel about Katsukoto called Hamakua Hero. She says to help young people see that better working conditions don't just happen. People have been fighting and dying for fair working conditions for over a hundred years in Hawaii. particular Aloha Friday. I'm Noe Tanigawa. It has been so fun to be with you today. Anything you hear give you ideas? You be sure and call that talk back line. Leave us a comment. While it's on your mind, 808-792-8217. Email us any old time at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Let us know what you're thinking. And if you want to look for that remote side job link, the conversation page on the HPR website. The conversation is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. Our theme music is courtesy of Gypsy 808. As I said, Noe Tanigawa here. Join us Monday when Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation. Until then, have a great weekend. Let's take care of each other and have a happy Aloha Friday.